0: Hello,
1: and welcome back to Off the Beaten Bad. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society, and we welcome you to this podcast for October 5th, 2023. We are broadcasting this week from the History and Memory Department here at the Georgia Historical Society on the 15th floor of the Jepson House overlooking beautiful Forsyth Park in downtown Savannah. My guest this week on the podcast is Kevin Levin. Kevin is the author of the Substack blog, Civil War Memory he's been writing a blog with that name since 2005. Kevin is an educator and historian based in Boston, Massachusetts. For 20 years, he taught high school history in Virginia and Massachusetts, and in recent years, he has worked with teachers and students across the country to create a better understanding about the current debate about Civil War monuments. His research is focused primarily on the Civil War era with a concentration, as you might expect, in Civil War memory. He is the author and editor of three books, including, most recently, Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2019, Remembering the Battle of the Crater, War as Murder, published in 2012 by the University of Kentucky Press, and Interpreting the Civil War at Museums and Historic Sites, published in 2017. He is currently writing a biography of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw entitled A Glorious Fate, The Life and Legacy of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, which is under advance contract with the University of North Carolina Press. He is also editing the collected wartime and post-war correspondence of Captain John Christopher Winsmith. Kevin Levin has written op-eds in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Smithsonian Magazine, The Daily Beast, Civil War Times, and The Civil War Monitor. He has been interviewed about the controversy surrounding Confederate monuments in a number of national and international publications, including The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Boston Globe, Wall Street Journal, and National Public Radio. As I mentioned, you can find him on Substack with the blog Civil War Memory. You can also find him at his personal website at cwmemory.com. My conversation with Kevin Levin begins now. Kevin Levin, welcome to our podcast.
0: Great to be with you, Stan.
1: So you have for some time been writing uh, – I know you're on Substack now, and uh, I, I want you to – as we go along, at some point, I want you to tell listeners how they can follow you there. Um, for a long time, you you were the – and I guess you still call it a blog, though it's on, yeah. on Substack. For a long time, and you wrote one that was uh, just out there on the internet, but the one you're writing now is called Civil War Memory, and you have for a long time been a very active public historian in the field of history and memory. For the benefit of our listeners, what is the difference between history and memory?
0: That's a good question. Um, and I think it is fundamental to sort of how I think about um, the Civil War era as a whole. I understand history as the critical study of the recorded past. It's it's what we do as historians. It's uh, the framing of questions. Um that we use to guide our research and interpretation it's the critical examination of primary sources that you find uh, in the archives that uh, more and more you now find online in um, in digital repositories so um, for me history is, is sort of how we write the past that process and that Process is always under revision, right? Uh, sort of how we think about history is always evolving, based on um, new evidence that comes to light, based on new questions that we pose to the past and the historical record, uh, and I think also based on who's doing the interpreting. I mean, we don't have to go back that far to a point in the past where the majority of you know the, of, of historians, of trained historians, at least. Uh, were white men. And so I think having a much more diverse community of scholars and historians, public historians, um, also, I think, enriches our understanding of the past and creates a much more vibrant conversation. But in the end, I also, I think it's important to, to emphasize that our understanding of the past is always evolving. Revisionism in this context is a good thing. We want there to be a revision of the past because we're always learning more. I think that stands in contrast uh, with how we understand memory. Memory to me it includes um, the stories that we tell ourselves about who we take ourselves to be, about um, how we remember our collective past. So stories about who we take ourselves to be as members of families, local communities, organizations, and even nations, right? Memory is about stitching people together, if you will. And we see that in any number of ways in the public. Look at street signs, look at the names of public buildings, look at the monuments and statues that populate our public landscapes. That tells us something about how people at different times have chosen to remember uh, their collective past. I think it's also important to remember that part of remembering, the process of remembering is also forgetting certain elements of the past. Uh, often the the stories that we choose to remember are about uh, the stories that the people in political power have influence over. And that's especially the case when we're talking about monuments and statues. Who has the uh, economic power? Who has the political power to shape that public memory? And in contrast, I think, with how we understand history, the purveyors of memory, the people who are interested in memory building, if you will, I think expect that their chosen or preferred memory of the past is going to continue indefinitely uh, in the future. And that's often when we get into conflicts over how we should remember the past, especially in our public spaces. And I think we're seeing that play out right now Obviously, in reference to the Confederate monuments and Civil War monuments, uh, more generally. So, again, who who has the the political power to create memory? Uh, who has the economic power to create memory? Those are important questions. But I, I tend to I think it's important to distinguish between the two, uh, especially when it comes to subjects like the American Civil War and Reconstruction.
1: And there is a difference, is there not, between collective public memory, as you said, that we see in, in <clears throat> monuments and statues and individual memory, how we each remember not only our own past, but perhaps our nation's past.
0: Oh, I, I completely agree. I think there is something deeply ingrained, uh, hardwired, if you will, uh, into each of us. We are, I think, programmed to tell stories. Um, Spiders spin webs. They are, I think, uh, hardwired to do so. They don't have to think about it. And I think we are in a similar position in the sense that we weave stories to make sense of ourselves um, to ourselves and to others. What do we do? We tell stories. We try to make sense of who we are over time, where we've been, perhaps where we're going in the form of narratives. And I think we see the same kind of dynamic play out in our own lives and in our own narratives as we do in our collective narratives. They are constantly evolving. They are constantly evolving to make sense of the present. Memory is often about the moment in time in which uh, the narratives are created. Right. Um, And I think that's another important distinction that memory is about the present. It's about, you know, our memories are, I think, there to perform a certain function, help us to make sense of ourselves, who we take ourselves to be.
1: mm -hmm. Yeah. You have written a great deal and talked a great deal about um, this subject, and um, and particularly as it pertains to the Civil War. And as you just mentioned, um, we have in this country for some time immediately in the last three or four years, a great deal, but really going back 20 years or more in some places, we've been having discussions, conversations, or arguments, however you choose to to uh, describe them, about the place of monuments in the public space, particularly Confederate monuments. What do you say to people who say to you, if we take down monuments, because I hear this all the time, Yeah, we're, we're going to be erasing history. What's yeah. your immediate response to that? I know you've written a great deal about it, but what, yeah. what do you say to people?
0: Yeah, I I think that's a complicated question, because on the one hand, removing a monument is, or statue is, in a sense, erasing a a past. It's it's removing the artifact itself. And so the landscape in which it was once situated upon, uh, that's changed over time, right? It's no longer there. So I can see how someone might think of that as erasing the past. But again, I think this is an important distinction between history and memory. Um, We don't need statues. We don't need any statues or monuments to study the past. And I would remind people that um, we have no difficulty at all studying any number of events, individuals from the past who are not honored with a monument or statue or some other commemorative form. So the removal of the monument is part of that process of of the evolution of memory right and it sort of gets back to the point I was trying to make a few minutes earlier that it's always evolving over time and that each generation I think um, has to sort of think for itself how it how it wants to use its public spaces to uh, to remember its past and I think the those public spaces perform a very important function and that is that they are an opportunity to bring people together around a shared set of values. And I think, you know, when, we, when we're when we talking about the high point of Confederate monuments going up at the turn of the 20th century, um, we're talking about a time when in many parts of the country, especially in the South, um, we're talking about a time when in many places, half, if not more of the population was prevented legally from taking part in those public conversations about how to utilize those public landscapes and so i think now we're finally at a point it's long overdue where we can have those important conversations and in part i think it's because political power has shifted to such a to such a great extent in many parts right whereas not too long ago our local uh, governments were dominated by A narrow group of um of citizens today it's much more diverse and thankfully so because i think we have an opportunity to leverage that um to to shape those public spaces in ways in which they just didn't have the opportunity to do so uh not that long ago
1: i think we're we're increasing you can agree with me or not we Mm -hmm. we are increasingly i think seeing um beginning to recognize Seeing the Confederate States of America as a threat to the survival of the republic, Um, historically, Hmm. looking back at it now, we are beginning to interpret it publicly as that. Do you you think that that's one of the reasons? uh, There's two questions here. Is that why we are beginning to see a pushback against monuments that in many ways are memorializing an effort to destroy the United States of America as it existed in 1860, the world's only republic? And that we now recognize that, that was not exactly something that should have ever been memorialized yeah. And, and or, of course, it's linked to the issue of slavery, of course. But the, the, I guess the question I'm at, why has it taken the American public 160 years to come to grips with the Confederacy as not something to be celebrated, even though our own ancestors, many of us had people who fought yeah. for the Confederacy, but to see it as the most serious domestic threat the United States has ever faced?
0: Yeah, that's such a are we just I mean, beginning to get to huh. that point? I I agree with you. I think we are we we've sort of made that shift over the last few decades. Um now I I think we I I do want to push back just a tiny bit because I do think, you know, Please if we're do. talking about if we're talking about black Americans, of course, I don't think there's ever been a time when the brunt of the black community um, you know, has viewed the Confederacy and its legacy as anything other than an attempt to destroy the United States in order to create an independent slaveholding republic. Um, so I think we can, yeah, and I, I assume both of us agree on that. But mm-hmm. I think as far as for white Americans, I think it's so interesting the way in which the memory of the war played out because by the early 20th century, as you know all too well, the memory of the Confederacy got... wrapped up in the memory of the old South and Northerners, you know, as the country becomes, this is just one example, much more industrialized, especially in the North and uh, that part of the country um, are sort of clamoring for this, you know, reminders of the old South and the way things used to be. And so memory of the Confederacy gets wrapped up in that reconciliation and reunion becomes uh, very powerful at the turn of the 20th century as the United States was becoming a world power and having that unified, um, having a reunited nation certainly allowed for the United States to make its case, if you will, for um, its imperialist uh, efforts overseas. And then I think you can't ignore the political power of memory, right? The politics of Civil War memory. I think, um, you know, you take a historian like David Blight, who is, I think, sort of beautifully sort of captured this in you know his book, Race and Reunion. Um, the the politics of memory, memory of the war did a lot of work in maintaining and helping white Americans, mainly white Southerners, uh, maintain that political hold. In other words, placing a, a Confederate statue or monument on the courthouse grounds is the clearest reminder, um, especially in counties where perhaps more than half were African-American. Uh, it, it's a clear reminder of who was in power and who was a second class citizen. Um, And and so I think that work, you know, it did really important work right through the middle part of the 20th century, uh, right through the civil rights era. And I think it has slowly but gradually withered away. And again, um, I think in large part because of those shifts in local power, um, we wouldn't be having a discussion about Public spaces and the legacy of the Confederacy. If it weren't for the fact that you have again a more diverse uh, public face uh, on city councils and state governments and et cetera, et cetera.
1: And what is the response to people who say, um, "You know, sure the the big the big monument of Robert E. Lee in Richmond that's one thing. Stonewall Jackson that's one thing. But on all these courthouse squares all over the country, yeah, uh, north and south." Some yeah. of these monuments to simple soldiers were simply uh, an attempt by people to memorialize soldiers, it, I, I, which is a, a yeah. universal response, right? That we know that yeah. in 1865, all over the country, there were legless and armless veterans on every corner. At every chair and every table, there were people yeah. missing who were brothers, yeah. sons, and fathers. So uh, is there any legitimacy to that argument that these attempts I, to simply memorialize soldiers should
0: remain? There they are. I don't think we should downplay that, uh, that, you know, the the attempt to memorialize um, the rank and file. I think we, I I think especially over the last few years, we have been, the general public has been less and less willing to sort of, I think, acknowledge some of the complexity of the past and um, the impact that defeat had on white Southerners in 1865 and the scale of Uh, the destruction not just to the landscape but to uh, the people themselves The scale of you know the casualties um, especially we all know that regiments are raised by uh, locality and you know some of these places are decimated you know and you can see it in the streets as you were alluding to just a moment ago and so certainly by the you know within a few decades by the early 20th century as those veterans are dying off I think we do have to acknowledge that um you know that there is a. It, I don't want to say necessarily legitimate, but a kind of sincere attempt to remember that generation, to remember uh, that sense of loss, whether it's family loss, whether it's community loss. Now, at the same time, I don't think we can divorce the 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 racial politics, um, the fact that this is coming after Reconstruction. From all of this, we have to consider this in totality. And look, I I would say to listeners, don't believe me, don't take my word for it. Read the dedication speeches at many of these monuments. Read Julian Carr's 1913 uh, dedication speech to what becomes known as Silent Sam on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill in uh, well in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's in 1913. It's roughly 50 years after the end of the war. He's a veteran himself, very prominent uh, businessman in North Carolina. And he, in the middle of the speech, sort of apologizes for a tangent, but he takes people back to the spring of 1865 and coming back from Appomattox and on the streets of, of, uh, of Chapel, Hill, Chapel Hill, he describes, quote unquote, horse whipping a Negro woman because she did something that he found offensive. And I think that the only way to understand that reference is to sort of place it within the context of 1913, a new generation of white Southerners is now um, coming onto the scene. They did not experience the war, obviously, or even reconstruction, perhaps. And it's an attempt uh, on the part of an older generation to educate that younger generation about their responsibilities to maintaining the racial status quo, just as they're parents and grandparents did, um, during the 1860s. That's just one example. I can, we can go through any number of examples, uh, across the, the post-war, uh, the post-war South to, to sort of reinforce that. So I think, I think we have to be, you know, we have to be inclusive in how we think about these monuments. I think we have to acknowledge that these monuments come in stages. I think, you know, if you really want the examples where the focus is on the rank and file and the common soldier look at the first round of confederate monuments that populate cemeteries right places like hollywood cemetery the confederate cemetery in winchester virginia other places uh, throughout uh, the former confederacy i think those are more uh, those are clearer examples of an attempt to narrow the focus and keep the politics out of it even though i think you can't even do that entirely But you get closer to that point. Um, But once you get into public spaces, right, we're talking about a very different dynamic here. And I think we have to acknowledge that we have to be honest to the past.
1: Well, and not only is there a racial dynamic to the context in which these things were put up, but then there's the underlying racial dynamic to the Confederacy itself, which, let's face it, for 100 years, white southerners were just in denial about because they would say things like, as you know... uh, Eighty percent of of Confederate soldiers, 80 percent of Southerners did not own slaves. And I always point out to people, look, slavery was written into the Confederate Constitution. Slavery was the cause between 1790 and 1860 that defined American politics. And if you're fighting for a constitution with slavery written into it, then you're fighting for it, regardless of how you and it's also I think the only war in which we are willing to look at the motivation of individual soldiers. We don't do that in World War II. We don't go now That's right. Was it really I mean, did all of these German soldiers hate Jews? I don't know that they all did. So maybe it wasn't really about that. Yeah. So I sort of teed it up for you. Now I'm gonna ask you. So if we allow Confederate monuments that memorialize the dead. What do we find offensive about German statues that do the same thing or Japanese?
0: What do we find? A, oh, uh, sorry. I'm, if we're
1: memorializing dead Confederate soldiers, yeah, right, yeah. which is where that last question began, isn't there something yeah. different between a big statue of Robert E. Lee and a statue of a Confederate soldier on the courthouse square or here in Savannah? Is that any different? To, why are we? do we find it offensive if Germans want to memorialize the valor of the SS or a uh, right. German soldier or the <laughs> Japanese in World War II?
0: Well, that's what i find so interesting because you know i happen to be married to a, a german woman and you can imagine when she we first uh, started dating and i you know started taking her around to battlefields and showing her the monuments and you can imagine her jaw dropped because she knew enough um you know t- she knew enough to know that of course the confederacy was founded um as alexander stevens uh, argued in uh in, in early 1861 Ah, uh, the cornerstone, right? And the importance of slavery. And she's just looked at me in sheer horror. She has no framework, really, for understanding how this could have uh, take, why this took shape, how this was allowed to happen. Um, and for her, it, you know, she said it over and over. It, it, it would be tantamount to Germans um commemorating. SS soldiers or the, the, the higher ranking officers and, and politicians. And so it, it is a mystery, uh, I think, uh, for someone like my wife and, um, you know, that, that is something unique to the United States, perhaps not entirely unique, but I do think it is, um, it, it is something that we do have to come to, to terms with as a nation, how, how this was allowed to happen to begin with. If that, I hope that answers your question, Stan. It
1: it does, it does, um, and and the fact that the same people, in many cases, who defend putting up, who who still can defend Confederate monuments, do not, and you know, would not ever defend a monument of that's right uh, to to the German soldier, to the valor of the Japanese. I mean, if you want to talk about that's suffering right. and all that thing, that, that certainly the people of Germany suffered a great deal once the Allied yeah. and, Ger- and Russian armies arrived in force. So moving moving on and yeah. back to back to you, um, <clears throat> as a public historian of the Civil War, you have written a couple of books, uh, at least I know, um, and, and written a lot of essays. You you have written a book, and correct me, Kevin, if I'm if I'm wrong here, because mm. we we're going to give you a proper introduction before this podcast begins. But you have written a book about the history of the Battle of the Crater. Yes, you have written, which I think was published by University of Kentucky Press. Yeah. And yeah. you have written a book about the myth of the black Confederate soldier. And remind right. me who published that.
0: Was That that like- was the University of North Carolina Press. North Carolina Press.
1: Yeah. Um, how did you, let's go back for a minute. How did you get interested in
0: the Civil War? Well, that actually uh, gets us back to uh, what we were talking about a few minutes earlier about memory. I, I actually, um, I, I have two master's degrees. My first master's is in philosophy. And then I went on and did one in history. and when I was a, a graduate student in philosophy, I was um, I was really interested in sort of the whole process of memory, the biological elements, the cognitive, psychological, all of that. And once I transitioned into, into history, uh, I actually was finishing my master's degree in philosophy, and my advisor just happened to live out in Boonesboro, Maryland, just a few miles from the Antietam battlefield. And I would go out there and house sit for him um, or dog sit when he would go on trips. And the first time I went out there, he left a list of places for me to visit. Top of the list was Antietam. I had not ever thought about the civil war in any serious way or visiting a battlefield, but you know, long story short, I went and visited and from that day on I was absolutely hooked. And so that's going back to roughly 1994, 95. And you know as i started getting into the the civil war i just devoured everything i could get my hands on and then i've already mentioned his name once in 2001 2002 david blight published race and reunion and i had really never thought about historical memory before and reading through that book was just a revelation you know that i have two copies of that book the first one is um you know, the notes in the margins, you can imagine the book itself has fallen apart. Uh, That book really did change my life in many ways. It gave me a kind of renewed focus on memory and being able to apply and uh, all all of that previous interest um, and study. And so that was really my introduction to the world of of Civil War memory. And since then, um, I've sort of, yeah, done my best to try to... um, tease out parts of it, understand parts of it, um, contribute to how people think about it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, it's been kind of a wild journey uh, since then. Um, I started blogging in 2005 and that was after my, I went back and did another master's degree in history at the University of Richmond. And I was, you know, reading uh, academic books, a lot of it about civil war memory. And I finished my degree and I was thinking, well, what do I do with all this? I was a high school teacher, very happy, private school teacher in Charlottesville. I thought about going for a PhD. Um, It didn't quite work out, but blogging had just started. And I kind of, um, I leaned into that at just the right time when I started Civil War memory in 2005. And so that, that really opened a lot of doors for me because within a year or two, um, I had people from all different backgrounds, academics, teachers, civil war enthusiasts, reading it and commenting. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely been a wild ride. And you did. No, you absolutely okay. did. So, I mean, you didn't, you didn't grow up with this fascination of the civil war. You oh, came no. to it a little late. Okay. Oh, I grew up in Atlantic city, New Jersey, five blocks from the beach. Uh, I had no interest in history. I had no interest in anything educational i barely graduated high school um i was skateboarding surfing cutting school um in fact i didn't even get in any colleges that i applied to i ended up going to a local community college uh, after graduating high school but um you know gradually i sort of discovered that that sort of uh i don't know that um the, that sense of curiosity right well, about certain what, things what yeah. were the,
1: did you immerse yourself in what we would think of as the seminal civil war text did you read Bruce Catton? Did you read Jim McPherson? Did you read,
0: uh, you know, Gary Gallagher, all these people? So that's a really, I've been thinking about that actually. That's a good question. I, so I finished uh, graduate school uh, initially in 1995, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. I mean, what do you do with a master's degree in philosophy? I ended up uh, taking a job in Alabama of all places, uh, teaching philosophy, but at the time I worked at a Borders Books and Music uh, just outside of D.C. in Rockville, Maryland. And it was a huge store. And the history section was just, I mean, it just went on and on. And mm-hmm. the history section and the Civil War section in particular was just massive. And I, you know, I i just read the books. I read everything I could get my hands on. But to your question, I never went back initially and read the, the Bruce Cattons and Alan Nevins, I was reading everything that was coming out at that time. So Gary Gallagher's The Confederate War, um, you know, Tracy Powers Lee's Miserables. I mean, anything that was ni- mid 1990s, late 1990s, that's the stuff I was devouring and it wasn't until later that I finally realized there were certain people that I needed to go back and and read and I'm glad I did that. But um yeah, it's definitely it's definitely I guess for me I guess in a sense, I stand out because I wasn't brought up on these sort of traditional stories of the Civil War. I have no investment one side or the other in how we understand the war. Um, and I think that's a, that has a lot to do with the fact that the books that I started out reading were all, I guess you might just say academic books, right? Um, and that's the stuff I, I was really interested in. I was really interested in interpretation. And um, and what I consider to be serious history. By the way,
1: I should say, I really miss Borders books. They had just as you say, they, they had terrific, uh, books, a huge section of biography yeah. and history. And they had hardbacks, it, which yeah, most places I, don't
0: carry now. I read I, I, not, not, in addition to reading everything. I also ran a Civil War book group at the store. And so I could pick up a new book. And then just call the author if they lived in that general area of D.C., Maryland, Virginia, mm-hmm. and invite them in. And I brought in as many stories as I could yeah. during that time.
1: Well, you mentioned that your your original blog that you had, which was also called Civil War Memory. And I know that one of the things yeah. that you did and you seem to both excel at it and also I think you, you seem to revel in it was the fact that you – you were not just putting out information. You engaged the public. People wrote back to you. People commented on what you said, and you were very, very active on Twitter for a long time, engaging yeah. with Civil War enthusiasts. And let's be honest here. There are few people who are as passionate and, quite frankly, probably as heavily invested in in a set interpretation that did not match much of what we're saying here the public got ugly at times. How did you, uh, how, how, first of all, talk about the engagement with the public, your willingness, some said bravery or craziness to engage with people whose minds couldn't be changed, but you always waded in.
0: You were not afraid. Yeah. For the most part, I, I, I really enjoyed it because I mean, as you know, here I am with a blog about civil war memory and I'm reading about this subject. I am um, sort of reflecting on it myself and sharing the output on the blog, right? You know, my own thoughts about it. And then I have this whole other level of of engagement, right? Um, you know, people from all these different, sort of this different backgrounds, taking the time to read and sharing their own thoughts. And look, I would say, yeah, it certainly became heated at times. Um, I think, you know, there are a few moments where, I regret sort of how I responded to people at times. Um, I guess we're all human, but for me, it was part of that education. It was part of learning more about um, given that I came to this subject relatively late, it was more, it was more an opportunity for me to better understand where people were coming from. And, you know, in the end, it was part of a fascination with why we care about the past to begin with, right? Of all the things we can spend our our time, our limited time here on earth, thinking about and doing, why are people invested in how we think about the past, right? And I just thought that was fascinating. And the blog at the time seemed like just the the ideal platform. Um, you know, it took work to to moderate at times. And I would say, look, you know i think people remember i mean there's a sort of a short list of characters that you know regularly commented on on the on the blog and we might call them neo confederates or perhaps even worse um but there's a really small number that i you know regret ever allowing on the site i think you know 95% of them um i think taught me something and um you know it's i think i benefit from that in the end so i you know, moving to Substack, I don't have the same level of engagement. And that's okay, because I'm in a different space as well. But I think, you know, when it was on WordPress for all those years, I mean, it's coming up to 20 years, um, you know, it's, it it, it was more appropriate. And, and it worked. Tell
1: our audience where they can find you now and how to find you.
0: Yeah. So, you know, offhand, the URL escapes me. But if you just, you know, go to your favorite search engine, Google, and just, you know, plug in Substack, Kevin Levin or Civil War Memory, you'll, you'll find it. And the nice thing about Substack is, you know, you can subscribe. Uh, you can subscribe for free. You can subscribe and get everything I write as a paid subscriber. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it's a much easier way for me to manage an email list. And I think, on the reader end, uh, the reader uh, has a much easier access. You're you're less likely to miss something. And in that, fact, can
1: people even comment on what you? Oh yeah, yeah. Paid, can, subscribers, okay. paid subscribers,
0: paid okay. subscribers can comment, and that's mm-hmm. way. That's one way to be honest of keeping the discussions it's still mm-hmm. vibrant. It's um, you know, it's it's still a rich discussion, but it is a way for me to keep the um, you know, some of the loose cannons uh, out of it. But, you know, they can also, if they pay, they can, of course, do what they want.
1: <laughs> yeah, the paying customer. So all those <laughs> yeah. columns, all, all the stuff you wrote that used to be on WordPress, is that archived somewhere? Are you going to it, publish it one day or what, what's going to become uh, of that?
0: I don't know. I mean, it, the WordPress site itself is still up and everything is there. It's still accessible. Uh, at different times, I've thought about trying to turn it into something. Um some people may know that uh, the most popular substack right now is historian heather cox richardson's uh letters from an american mm-hmm. and she has i think it's in it's over a million subscribers it's really quite remarkable and just last week she published a book um that is essentially kind of a collating of uh recent substack posts and i certainly have no vision or you know <laughs> <laughs> I'm under any illusion that I can sort of match what she's accomplished. But I've thought about um, doing something along those lines at different points. But, you know, I have other projects ongoing and um, we'll have to just see if there's room at some point. Yeah. And, and, speak- and if there's a real need, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Speaking of, let's talk about your current project. Um, you are writing a biography of Robert Gould Shaw. And our, our audience probably remembers most famously that he was part <laughs> of... I won't say the subject of, but he was certainly one of the main um, subjects of the 1989 movie *Glory*, which, of course, had Denzel Washington and yep. um, his name escapes me now. The fellow who actually
0: played Shaw. Oh, uh, Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick, of course. <laughs> yeah.
1: So yep. you're writing a biography of Shaw, and I and I want you to talk about that. What 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 drew you to the subject, but. It is astonishing to me that after that movie, um, we talked about this the last time we saw each other, there was a collection of letters that were published of Shaw's letters and a very, very short biography. But this you didn't have to clear the field here. Was there anybody working on this or thinking about it?
0: No, no one, Um, which is surprising. I mean, you know, it's it's an incredibly rich collection of letters that he wrote um, between 1861 and 1863. Actually, his letters, uh, you know, they're located in Harvard um they go back to when he was about 14 uh so you know it covers it's a short life of course but um and, and for those collection... who, didn't, who don't know the movie or
1: who didn't just tell our audience who, who was robert Gules.
0: yes robert gould shaw was born in 1837 to a uh, a brahmin boston wealthy boston family um an abolitionist family very engaged in reform movements and uh, in 1861 Shaw served first with the 2nd uh, Massachusetts Infantry, rose to the rank of captain, uh, fought in a number of battles, 2nd uh, Winchester, Cedar Mountain, Antietam, and in early 1863, Governor John Andrew of Massachusetts was in the process of forming the 1st first, uh, first Black Regiment um, to be raised in the North. And was looking for someone from an abolitionist family, and Shaw turned out to be his guy. And so, he ended up commanding the 54th. And in early June of 1863, uh, they sailed down to the Low Country uh, between South Carolina and Georgia. He was there for about seven, eight weeks before he was killed, leading a famous charge against Battery Wagner on Morris Island in South Carolina, where he where he died, where he fell in battle. And, and, and of course, there. there's a famous memorial, very well-known memorial here in Boston, where I now live, um, honoring Shaw and the 54th.
1: And what day did he die?
0: Uh, July 18th, 1863. And he, do we know where he's buried? Yeah, it's a great question because, uh, you know, as we talked a couple days ago, I just finished a week-long journey to the Lowcountry, my first visit. And Shaw was initially buried um, by Confederates with his men uh, below... Battery Wagner on Morris Island. It was considered, the intention was as an insult to Shaw being buried with his black soldiers. And uh, when his parents had the opportunity to um, disinter his remains, they refused and said, it's the highest honor uh, that you could bestow on our son. Now, after the war, there was a federal uh, attempt, a reburial project uh, throughout the entire area, area around Charleston. And the remains of um, United States soldiers were removed, uh, relocated to Beaufort National Cemetery. And so I was able to walk the ground uh, of Buford. And there's a very good chance that Shaw's remains were removed in that process and uh, are now located in an un- unidentified grave. And so yeah. to actually be walking that ground was um, incredibly moving, incredibly moving.
1: So and just for the record that's Beaufort National Cemetery in Beaufort South Carolina. In Beaufort in Beaufort and, South
0: Carolina. Yeah. And his grave is not marked. No. No. Um, there are there are there are soldiers from the 54th that are marked uh, that that were wounded at Wagner and brought to a number of hospitals in Beaufort and then who of course succumbed to their wounds and and were buried in the National Cemetery. So what are
1: you finding out about him that is surprising that will you know maybe cause us to think differently i mean that movie is for especially for those who were interested in history in the civil war that movie was was so um profoundly important on so many different levels before private ryan it was had what many considered to be one of the most realistic depictions of combat ever put on film i remember james McPherson reviewing it and saying that opening scene at the battle of antietam was was extraordinarily real um, but it sort of cemented Shaw in, in, in this, you know, uh, in our collective memory as uh, this sort of a, a, a far seeing, not a civil rights worker, maybe, but somebody who <laughs> uh, saw Black people as human beings with great potential. That scene where he says, Remember what you see here, as if sort of his message to yeah. the future was for the first time, these men are going to act like soldiers and, and they're yeah. going to be treated, as, and, and these soldiers are men. They're black, but yeah. they're men. Exactly. exactly. So what what are you finding out in your research? What what's this book going to do for us, so to speak?
0: Well, the first thing I'll say is, to me, Glory is still the best Civil War movie out there. Um, and so, if you haven't seen it, make sure you see it. But one of the things I'm trying to do with with this book is is sort of is resituate Shaw within his own world, because I think you're alluding to what I often come up against, and that is kind of, um, you know, there's the lost cause, and we've moved, uh, we've I think we've done a good job of putting it in its place, but I think we have gone a little bit perhaps too far in the opposite direction. I think right now, and I think you, we saw this during the years of the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary of the war, where everything now is being reduced, it seems, to the issue of emancipation and uh, the broader issue of race, and I do not in any sense want to diminish uh, those subjects. They are absolutely crucial, but I don't think, and I think Shaw has been in some ways the face of that um, memory of the war now, this kind of uh, emancipationist um, narrative of the war. I think one of the first things I'm trying to do is remind people that Shaw's experience with the 54th and especially his time in the field was very brief. Uh, you know, he took command of the 54th in uh, late February of 1863. They trained for a few months um, outside of Boston, and then they're off to the Sea Islands and uh, the Low Country. Shaw is killed on July 18th of 1863. So his his time with this Black regiment is was very brief. In contrast with the fact that he served uh, from. June of 1861 until January of 1863 in the Second Massachusetts. So his understanding of the war, I think, and Glory is guilty of this. Glory says really nothing about his time in the Second Massachusetts, but that is the context in which his understanding of the war is evolving. These are the moments when he comes into first contact with uh, with escaped slaves, with contraband. Um, you know, so. I think it's absolutely important to understand how that much larger chunk of time is going to sort of fit into the experience in 1863. I think the other major thing that I'm trying to do is, um, and I, I won't be the first person to suggest this by far, but but hopefully I can flesh this out in ways that haven't been done before, that Shaw was not an idealist. And to turn Shaw into an idealist, I think, um, moves us further away from understanding the ways in which the war creates an opportunity for certain coalitions to take shape and push the country forward. Shaw's parents were strong abolitionists. They desperately wanted their son uh, to see the war as they saw it, as a moral crusade. Shaw was much more of a pragmatist. Um, He was much more interested in advancing his own uh, military career and his own personal career um he certainly was interested in winning the war there's no question about that but by 1863 what do we find we find shaw actually doing the work that his parents always intended for him to do that that important work of leading black men in battle but he's not doing it for the exact reasons that they expect of him and so it's a wonderful example of, of ways in which the war creates these opportunities. Again, again, these coalitions, not just between Shaw and his parents and the work they're doing behind the scenes, but between you know, any number of different groups, the federal government and the military enslave people on the ground. Um, it's just incredibly complicated. And I think I'm trying to, um, to sort of remind people of the, the ways in which the war just, you know, it, it, it moves in different directions at different times. No one can predict what's going to happen, but it opens up these moments of opportunity. And Shaw as a pragmatist, I think, sort of maneuvers his way through it as best he can, never fully, uh, I think, embracing one specific view of what the war is about, ending his life in a sense as um, as a very practical, pragmatic individual. Um, certainly not the principled abolitionist that I think many people want to believe uh, he embodied. And so I'm trying to challenge that. And then there'll be a little section after at the end on memory um, that sort of helps people understand how that narrative took shape.
1: How old was he when he died? 26. Yeah. 26. Yeah. Did did he have any sense? Was he aware, acutely aware or otherwise of really sort of the groundbreaking moment that that was. We know that there had been black soldiers in the Revolution. We we know that there had right. been black men in combat maybe for millennia, but did he understand the enormous uh, moment in history, if you will, that that represented and his place in it as the leader there?
0: That's a really good question, and I think, I think if you read through his letters and and they're they're all very revealing i think there are glimpses of that i think especially when he's um when he's on saint simon's island in georgia when he is um you know uh on, at, at uh, saint helena's island um in south carolina and he is interacting for the first time i mean here's a here's a kid who uh, even though his parents are strongly abolitionists, uh, had very, very little contact with African-Americans growing up. And even even during the war, his contact is fairly limited. And he expresses very little interest in the subject of uh, emancipation and African-Americans uh, during much of the war so i i don't think that that shaw had any sense of what the future would look like um you know in in those moments in those final weeks of his life he's certainly not anticipating um you know full civil rights and political rights for african americans um you know that i think is more um a product of how we've chosen perhaps to see him as part of that larger narrative of a broad civil rights movement if you will um you know, so I think there are there are glimmers of that larger world um, in, in some of his letters. But I think right to the end, I think he was focused on the issues that, you know, colonels on the ground had to focus on, you know, um, all the logistics, um, you know, things like that.
1: Is So is that moment in the movie where he looks at the reporter and says, remember what you see here? Is there any evidence that actually happened? No. Or is that pure Hollywood?
0: That's that's pure Hollywood. Uh, I would say, however, that um, he does worry about perceptions of black soldiers uh, that comes out very clearly. And I would say one of the best scenes in that movie is the scene uh, that depicts the burning of Darien on, J- on June, I want to say, 11th, 1863, mm-hmm. uh, where the 54th and the 2nd second, Ma- uh, second uh, South Carolina, under the command of James Montgomery, uh, burn darien georgia at least the, the business district and and some of the residential area mm-hmm. uh, shaw was troubled about that uh, about that moment uh at first he refused the order uh and for weeks afterwards uh you know he he wanted he wanted the i think he wanted the, the newspapers he wanted his um family back home and friends to understand that he was against Uh, the burning of the town, in large part because it served no, from his point of view, it served no military purpose. But he also expresses concern about how this is going to impact public perception of Black soldiers. Um, Now, you know, so I think that's there, that sense of, remember these men, let's acknowledge what they're doing. Um, The movie goes a little bit too far, however, in um, in the extent to which Shaw interacted with these Black soldiers, even going back to their training at Reedville outside of Boston I don't really get any sense at all that he that he interacted much at all with with these men and again you know when it comes to training captains lieutenants would have been doing that that work on the ground Shaw was interested in and had other responsibilities at that time but uh, it certainly challenges that popular perception of this caring officer right who um is, Uh, Looking out for his men at every turn, that scene where he is um, reminding his uh, soldiers that they should be able to shoot three rounds a minute, right? You may be able to shoot something in the distance as a result of your background as a hunter, but, you know, um, standing up on that firing line is going to take a bit more discipline. Did, um, did
1: did he, in fact, intervene to get his soldiers properly shooed
0: and clothed, as we see in the movie? Yeah, that's another interesting aspect of the movie. And none of that at all is, is uh, historically accurate. John Andrew, again, the governor of Massachusetts, he had been pushing for a black regiment going back to 1861. And so... When he finally gets approval in early 1863, he uh, he ensures that this regiment is lacking for nothing. These men sleep in long barracks uh, at Reedville. Not uh, the best barracks; they leak, but they have uniforms. They have weapons from uh, close to day one. Uh, they have everything they need, and I think that speaks to the extent to which Glory is a story of. From slavery to freedom, right? And think of the main characters in that movie. In terms of the enlisted men, they're all former slaves. The fifty fourth was made up almost entirely entirely of free black men from the north, uh, and so that's that. But that that dynamic doesn't really that doesn't have a kind of Hollywood. It's it's not attractive to Hollywood. It's and- the, right.
1: Yeah, and, and the character of Thomas, who was supposed to be his lifelong friend and bosom pal from yeah, Massachusetts, no, was a complete fiction, right?
0: <laughs> there's no Thomas in Shaw's life. I think that character is a composite of a number of people, perhaps including Lewis Douglas, which was Frederick Douglas's son, mm-hmm. uh, who served in the regiment as well.
1: This book is going to be published by the University of North Carolina Press?
0: Eventually, yes. <laughs> <Hopefully>. <laughs> and I was about to ask that that horrible question, Is I know. When, when may we expect to see it? I'm hoping to finish the manuscript by the uh, the end of the year, latest the end of January of 2024, and then, as you well know, um, you know, you send it to the publisher, and there's a whole peer review process, and perhaps an opportunity to correct some mistakes and improve the manuscript. Um, so I'm hoping um, perhaps early 2025.
1: Okay. Um. Yeah. And and when you write, where do you write, and for how long each day do you write?
0: So I do my best work early, early in the morning. So I get up around 530. um, And I'm pretty good when it comes to the writing process. uh, till early afternoon, and from then on, I can do a lot of reading. And, um, you know, if I've got enough energy, and, you know, the, the thoughts are flying, I can keep going into the early evening. But my best time, if you will, is from roughly six in the morning until early afternoon. Where do you write? Where I am now, yeah, in my home library office. If I need a break, I pick up one of my bass guitars and, you know. <laughs> so have one some other, fun.
1: Yeah. W- one other question and, and related but unrelated to what we've been talking about. Um, the U.S. semi quincentennial, semi quincentennial is approaching in 2026, the 250th yeah. anniversary. You have been dealing in in history and memory. What should we be doing? Uh, as a country, as we move toward that anniversary, which I think we know history has become very divisive, has become part of the culture wars. Um, one side says that the uh, you know the, the other side is trying to indoctrinate children as is hating their country, calling it into question the racial mores of our country, slavery, the role at play. The other side thinks that um, they say that the people on the right are trying to whitewash history. They're trying to simply make us sort of just uh, teach propaganda to our children to only. Love and never question. Um, as we approach this important anniversary, where do you see what? What should we be doing? How should we
0: remember this anniversary? Uh, that's a tough question, Stan. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, I don't mind admitting that I I haven't really given it much thought, and it's in part uh, the reason is based on how you just prefaced your question it's difficult to think about a large scale national, you know, um, remembrance. Um, When teachers, you know, um, really good teachers are under the gun, they're quitting in large numbers, history teachers across the country. Um, I'm hearing from teachers all the time who are scared to teach this stuff, scared to teach you know, um, history that I think the two of us would, um, would agree is just part of the standard narrative. There's a lot of fear out there. And so my focus has been on trying to support history teachers, just doing the work that we expect them to be doing day in, day out for our, for our kids. But, you know, there is going to be a, um, a commemoration. It's going to be, you know, um, you know, years in the making in terms of it's, it's going to take a couple of years to play out here in Boston. I think it's uh, it's going to start up fairly soon, given uh, the events that took place here in, in the Boston area. And there are organizations that are hard at work on, on putting events together. Um, and so I think, look, this is going to happen one way or the other. And I think we're going to have to face the fact that it's going to be divisive. And I don't know what's going to come out of it. I don't know if it's going to be, to what extent it's going to be successful. Um, I'm hoping for the best, but I don't really have any predictions. And I don't really, you know, to be honest, I I don't really know how we should go about this uh, at this point. I just don't because um, because in part the debate has been, again, has been so, so divisive. But if ever there was a moment where we need it, Uh, I think certainly these moments have an opportunity to bring us together as Americans. And I don't know if that is just naive thinking at this point. I hope it isn't. I really do. But um, it doesn't look good. And I hate to sort of end on such a negative, sour note, but that's where I am mentally in terms of my thinking right now. I don't know where you are, but.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting that you say we need it because when it happened in 1976 with the Bicentennial, we were just coming out of. Uh, Watergate. We were just coming out of Nixon's resignation. We were in an election year. Twenty six yeah. is at least going to be a bye year. Uh, and, you know, yeah. we were we were in the middle of an election year, and it was at the end of the Vietnam War, at a time when Americans I don't think had ever been more cynical about their government, and yet somehow yeah. I think. It did do what you're talking about. Now, it was a celebration of white founders. There's no yeah. doubt it's not anything like we would do today, but it, it was sort of it was what the country needed, I think, at that time. So Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and look, I, I think, you know, we, we had a 150th uh, anniversary of the Civil War. I think overall it was fairly successful in terms of. Uh, The overall focus in places like Virginia, Uh, other state commissions, I think, did a fabulous job. The National Park Service, I think, did a fabulous job throughout the four plus years of the uh, commemoration. And then what happened? Um, The events in Charleston, the murders in Charleston. But I think even since the summer of 2015, you know, as divisive as it's been, I, I guess, you know, look, there have been some positives as a result of this. I think Americans are thinking about the past in the ways in which in ways in which they haven't before. We are talking about some of the the, the hard issues. I mean one of the reasons why things are so uh, divisive right now is because we are focused in a way in which we haven't been in the past and 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 I think that is a good thing, right? These are not easy questions uh, to handle and deal with. but how that's going to play into because this is not going to die down, it seems to me. Uh, how all of this sort of racial unrest uh, is going to play into the 250th, I just don't know. I just don't know at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't.
1: Well, I appreciate your insights into that and uh, and everything else that you're working on and doing. Uh, thank you for coming on our podcast. And again, if you want to check out everything that Kevin is writing about, you can find him on Substack at Civil War Memory. Kevin Levin, thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much, Dan. Enjoyed it.
1: The hardest working producer and engineer in show business, the czar of our Tallahassee office, as well as the captain of the GHS shin-kicking team is our very own Brendan Cannonball-Krellin. Our director of communications and the GHS ambassador from Long Island, one-man damn Yankee's fan club is Keith Pinstripes-Stragero. The GHS empress of the historical marker, don't call them monuments division, is Elise 135 words butler. The captain of the GHS Italian wine tasting team is Rebecca Beerstein Bertina. Our GHS director of Bean County is Greg Decimal Point Durkin, assisted by our accounts payable administrator, Amelda Chex. The director of the GHS Civil War Reenactors Division is Nate Stonewall Jackson-Peterson. Our off-the-deaton path fact-checker is Ella Fino. Our director of employee loyalty is Upton Leftis. The Off the Deaton Path moving van driver is Carrie DeSofa. Our staff layoff specialist is Harry Verdurchi, assisted by layoff counselor Oscar LaVista. Our Off the Deaton Path HR director is Stella Payne Diaz. Our Russian intern this year is Igor Beaver. Our staff director of Three Stooges Studies is Lea Iopoca. Dr. Todd Gross's personal eBay specialist is Selma Junkoff. And our Off the Deaton Path martini mixer, as always, is Olive Twist. You can find our podcast anywhere that you can find podcasts. You can find out everything about the Georgia Historical Society at georgiahistory.com and the Georgia History Festival at georgiahistoryfestival.org. Be sure and like Off the Deaton Path on Facebook as well. Please also visit deatonpath.georgiahistory.com and check out dispatches from Off the Deaton Path, my blog, and similar memory loss-inducing podcasts like this one. Stay safe, stay strong. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society. As always, thank you for listening.